0: Today's guest of this special live episode of the Unicorn podcast is entrepreneur, philanthropist, billionaire, and now author, John Caldwell. John founded Caldwell Group, the telco company which included Phones For You. When he sold Caldwell Group in 2006, the business was selling 26 phones a minute. But after all his success, John says that nothing gives him the same feeling as helping people. And while remaining active in the business world, he devotes most of his time to his lifelong philanthropic ambitions, pledging to donate 70% of his wealth to charitable causes. Let's get into the podcast. Well, John, thank you, first of all, for sparing time uh, for us all here today to, to come and share some knowledge and some inspiration, some insight. So thank you, first of all, I know how busy you are. Pleasure. Um, so look, why don't we start off, um, I ask a lot of the audience uh, to give me things that they'd like to know from you, and what we'll do um, in a moment is we will go to the audience and ask you guys to ask questions. I always think that's the best way um, to find out what you guys would like to hear. Um, before we do that, I just there's a few things I wanted to, to, to talk to you about and, and know myself. Um, so one of the things I was really interested in, your, your journey of entrepreneurship seems so natural. Um, And you talk about it a lot, about how you were an entrepreneur from a young age. And do you think entrepreneurs are born or bred?
1: I I think the answer to that is very simple. Everybody that's really good at what they do are born. And then they have to work like fury. The people that are not born with the skills can still advance and do very, very well. But you're never going to be a world champion, 100-meter sprinter, unless you're born to be so. And you're never going to be that champion unless you then work flat out to achieve the objective. So it's a combination of genetic luck and then sheer graft and hard work. Well, that shouldn't demot- demotivate anybody that might not have the full skills to, to you know, shoot the lights out, because you can still be incredibly successful just by hard work and learning on the job, which is something I've actually done
0: for many, many years because I had no guidance. You, um, you talk about luck quite a lot, actually. It comes up quite frequently. Um, do you feel that you were lucky?
1: Well, it always sounds, I think, a little bit false when I say most of my luck's probably been bad luck. And then people say, well, how could you be successful if you've had bad luck? But the, the, the trick of entrepreneurship or anything in life is to take whatever bad luck you get, not let it batter you down, and to find a solution that turns the bad luck into good luck now you can only do that if you've got your health so the luck that i had was that i was born very resilient with good health and that is pure luck you know and so it's the luck of birth but after that you just do the best that you can to make the best of every situation and to uh, turn everything to your own advantage
0: I think, uh, yeah, luck is one of those things that you can hack, actually. Like you say, bad luck and good luck. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of perspective, isn't it?
1: It is, a lot of people talk about, oh, I had bad luck. And my son was having that conversation with me the other day. I said, no, Jack, but you're not unlucky. These things happen to everybody. It's what you do with that bad luck that counts. Mm-hmm. You should never just put it down to bad luck. You've got to say, okay, this happened. This happened, what am I going to do? to turn, and okay, it may have been bad luck, but that's a loser mentality, because if you have bad luck, and you just say, I'm unlucky, you're gonna be unlucky for the rest of your life. You have to combat and find ways through. And the lucky bit is having the ability, the mental aptitude, the intellect, the drive and the desire to do that, to turn bad luck into good luck.
0: There's a saying out there, um, the harder you work, the luckier you get. I actually really worry about this saying because it could drive a lot of people into the ground. Thinking hard work alone will make you lucky. I personally think the more risk you take, the luckier you get. Do you think that's true?
1: Oh, I'm not a great risk taker, although that might seem strange if people see my life. Um, But, you know, everything I do is to balance risk against return. So I take risk, but if I take a risk of one unit, I expect it to return five units. So if you take a few of those risks and one or two go under and the others prosper, you still win. And that's not really then down to taking risks. It's to do with a balanced attitude towards what you're doing. And I was very, very prudent in a lot of the things that I did when I built my business, but often prudence Um, really pays dividends in the long run. Prudence with your balance sheet, prudence with uh, the expansion of uh, fixed overheads, prudence all the way through. But not prudence to the extent that you're frightened to make a decision so that it thwarts your growth. That's the tricky balance, really.
0: Of course, you're famous for founding uh, Phones for You, um, which you sold. Um, There's a couple of questions around this I wanted to ask you. First of all, um, a slightly political one, I guess. There's a legal case right now uh, going from the system. I guess there's some risk there. Tell us what's happening there. What's, what's actually going on with the legal case?
1: Yeah, just, just as a matter of interest, how many people in the audience are familiar with Phones For You? Oh, wow, nearly everybody. How many people remember the day, or not necessarily the day, but that year when Phones For You were shut down? Not so many, not so many. Well, I'll tell you what happened. I sold the business in 2006. In 2014, the networks pulled out of phones for you in a period of 24 hours. Now, yes, they were selling mobile phones, but you couldn't really sell mobile phones unless you got an airtime contract to sell with it. That shut the business down, which was making at the time £120 million a year. So it still prospered after my days. It didn't grow anymore, but it was a solid, high performing business with a great bunch of people, a, a really good chain of high street shops. And it closed within hours because it had no business to continue. Now, just for all, I guess nearly all of you here are in business. If you had got a supplier, you got three suppliers, which phones for you had, and one pulled out six months before the end, one pulled out on the Saturday, 24 hours before the end, leaving one supplier. What would you do as that one supplier? I'll tell you what you'd do. You'd say, right, I've now got control of phones for you. I can pay them as little commission as I want to pay, hoping that they still survive, or even setting the commission at a survival rate so that phones for you receive no more profit. The 120 million a year disappears, but they survive. And what happens to the incumbent uh, supplier, the network supplier, which in this case was EE, who were the last ones standing? EE make a fortune. Out of Phone's View's um, terrible predicament. Well, he didn't do that. He, he pulled out the next day. And I went on television and throughout the media saying this was collusion. I did it for the whole day, 20 odd interviews. I think somewhat in a vain and naive hope that maybe the networks would get frightened that this collusion would come to uh, the law courts and that they would be in serious trouble and that they might reverse the decision. Anyway, they didn't, but for the last few weeks, this case of collusion has been in the courts and I'm waiting with bated breath to see how it turns out because I hate the big guys doing a deal, and of course, I don't know this is the case yet, but logic tells me it is, doing a deal in a collusionary way that kills the smaller players and you know it's it's frightening it's terrifying and people can't do much about that but it is also against the law so we'll all see what happens on that
0: so it feels to me like you've sold the business but you still very much feel like connected to that business
1: well yes because you know it was a business i I founded the whole cordwell group which included Phones for you. There was just me and one man. The expression is one man and a dog, isn't it? But I didn't have the dog, so it was just me. And I grew the business from one person to twelve thousand, from no turnover to two point four billion. And in the case of Phones for You, we became the biggest retailer on the high street, the most successful in terms of airtime sold per sh- per store. And I put my whole life into it for 20 years. And so, yeah, I was, it was my baby. You know, I'd grown it. I knew so many of the employees. There were a great, great team of employees. And that day that uh, collapsed as a result of the network's action was a devastating day for me, even though it was eight years later.
0: I think it's something not talked about enough, actually, because everyone I speak to who wants to be an entrepreneur talks about the journey of building a company and then selling it. I sold my company and within three weeks felt remorse. I sold literally my family. I wasn't seeing people that I used to see every single day anymore. And so it is actually kind of a strange thing. I don't think that should be people's end goal. Uh, we should rewrite the narrative a bit around that. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think you know it's different for different, all people are different. Um, in my case, I never considered selling it ever. I thought I was there for life, but a, a few things happened that changed mind on that one was i wanted to do more charity work and i couldn't do it while i was running such a huge company i wanted a bit more family time Uh, but more importantly i saw some real real serious recessionary times coming up and i was rather fearful that if i didn't sell then i might have been in the business for the next 10 years flogging myself to death as i always had done and actually just trying to uh, hold shareholder value. So I think everybody has to have their own decision on what they want. Do they want financial security, and is a business just a short-term means to an end, or is your passion and you really enjoy it, and you can see yourself doing it for life, as long as you don't get competitive threats that threaten to kill you in the long term that you can't really fight against.
0: If you were to start from zero now today i know you've got your 70th birthday coming up and you've got a lot of energy still uh, what would you do
1: well i'm not sure about the energy to be honest but uh, what i would do i i don't know what item i would be in but when i was in my 20s i started a mail order business and it, this is in my autobiography where i talk about when that mail order business failed as a result of bell Stuff motorcycle uh, clothing manufacturer cutting my supply, it really killed me off of a prime. And I felt at that time that that would have been the way that I was going to make my fortune in life. Uh, so the answer is I'd do something like that. But of course we've moved on today. So we're now on in the dot-com world, which gives you even more phenomenal opportunities because once you get the right product, with the right skill the right product you can then market it all over the world with a very very low cost business model so i don't know what i'd be selling it could be anything but it would be a dot-com
0: product you mentioned earlier there about almost monopolistic strategies where businesses, big businesses can squash small businesses i think decentralization is really exciting the movement of decentralization where no one owns the currency no one owns the social media platform, it's owned by the community, it's really exciting. I don't know if you've delved much into the web three decentralization stuff at all.
1: No, I think you've just left me behind there. So yeah, I- it's, it's <laughs> a fascinating
0: world, but uh, yeah, anybody listening. Uh, I think news. I'm too old, old for whatever that no, means. No, 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 not at all, I think it's, uh, it's, it's very new. Um, one of the things I, I picked up doing all my research on you, um, the last three days I've had your voice on my ear nonstop, um, which has been amazing, by the way, um, and not only, i just want to mention you've got a book coming out which i can't wait for when's it out
1: it's out actually on my birthday october the 7th
0: October seventh. so the best yeah. birthday present you could give john is buy his book and uh, i know you do everything with purpose and i know that you um everything you do now is for your charity called Well children um so i just wanted to ask you first of all what's the title of the book don't want to forget
1: it's love pain money
0: love pain and money and i know you talk a lot about the pain of entrepreneurship i'm excited about that book I guess I wanted to ask you, you you talked recently about how when you were younger, when you were about seven or eight years old, you had a dream that you were driving around in a Rolls Royce uh, giving out five pound notes to people. And it really resonated with me uh, because I I had a similar um, experience when I was younger. And I feel like you mentioned that that kind of led you to partly what you're doing now. Um, So people in the audience I know want to know how to find purpose, what is purpose? Um, How how do you think you got that downloaded? How did that come to you? How has that then manifested itself throughout your life?
1: Well, I I think first of all, I mean, uh, the sense of purpose in life is different for everybody. What I did with my children was I said, because I understood actually, I mean, a very successful father might put them under real duress to emulate, compete with, or, you know, uh, or, or expectation. And I didn't have any have that expectation of my children. What I said to them all is, there's only two things that I hope you can succeed in. One is to be happy, because let's face it, we all want to be happy. There's not a person in this room that doesn't want to be happy. We all want to be happy. And the other is to leave the world a better place than we found it. Now, not everybody in this room will want to do that. And my life is spent trying to encourage people to find that happiness, whatever that means, but more importantly, to leave the world a better place than you found it, because I think if you do that and you do acts of kindness, it automatically makes you happy. Uh, and that's certainly the case for me. So that childhood vision I had, it was a very weird, precocious vision of driving around in a Chevrolet-driven Rolls-Royce handing five-pound notes out to poor people, but in my dream, it gave me happiness. and. So it became my lifetime ambition. A, to be rich, just not, not just to be charitable, but because I wanted to be rich, I wanted to be successful. I wanted the, not so much the trappings of wealth, but I wanted the security of wealth. But then following on from that, the ability to be charitable. So when I sold the business, I joined the Giving Pledge. I have now, no guarantee to give at least 70% of my wealth away during or after my lifetime. But I'm very passionate about Cordwell Children because believe me, these children that we help are in desperate, desperate need of help. They can't get the help in many cases anywhere else. And if Cordwell Children doesn't help them, they live a life of misery. We can reduce that misery. And in fact, in one case, one of the little girls we helped since she was three years old, who became a real friend of mine, uh, Tilly, Tilly Griffiths, she's now uh, 20 years old. Um, she went to Stam- no, maybe 21 now. Went to Stanford University on a scholarship and is now working for Disney on an internship. And what an amazing success story that is. And we have lots of those sorts of su- success stories in the charity where these children would have no life if we didn't do what we do.
0: Just to put it in context, I was talking to your team uh, before uh, you arrived, um, and you've helped 85,000 children. I I think that deserves a round of applause. And you can all do me a really big favor and follow uh, Cauldron Kids on Twitter uh, right now. Get your phones out. Follow this charity on Twitter right now, please. Um, I'd really appreciate it. And I think that uh, I'm not seeing phones out. Come on! Normally we can't get you to put your phones away. Thank you. Please follow. It's, a, it's it's really inspiring. If you go click on what they're doing and read, as I have done, um, I'm going to be honest. I didn't know much about the charity th- three days ago, um, and when I read what you were doing, I think it deserves to be more famous. Uh, and frankly, uh, what you've already achieved is is mind blowing. And so you know, projects.
1: it's uh, you, you can't really describe these people, the people that have got a disabled or ill child, because. You imagine any one of you, and I'm sure some of you have got ill ill children, unfortunately, but imagine having a very, very seriously ill child and you've got no money. And this applies to nearly everybody who has a seriously ill child because generally one or both parents have to finish work and they're living on state aid. And the child requires a lot more attention and financial help than a normally able-bodied child. And these families live in a terrible, terrible situation, and they deserve every last bit of help that all of us in the UK can give. And of course, this is not just the UK; it's worldwide. It's the same problem worldwide.
0: Well, what I took when I looked at the content because initially you think it's going to be depressing, you know, hearing these stories. In fact, it's inspirational. The way the, they these push. kids are
1: amazing. Amazing. They're
0: amazing. It is.
1: It is depressing when you. Think about their situation. Mm-hmm. But when you meet the kids, mm-hmm. and they're so lacking in, um, lacking in expectation mm-hmm. of people, what people do for them. Yes. They're so grateful for the help that they can get, mm-hmm. and they're so positive about life, and so positive about making the very best of what they got, what they've got. And, and that would be a lesson to every one of us in this room, probably, mm-hmm. to learn to make do with what we've got, doesn't stop you being ambitious, but to, to, to not bemoan what's wrong in our lives, because believe you me, whatever's wrong in our lives, is nothing compared to what's wrong in some of these children's lives.
0: Totally. I mean, you talked there just about being happy. I actually think it's very hard to be happy all the time. I'm certainly not happy all the time. And I think, uh, it, it, but it, it does help you uh, readjust your state of mind when you realize, live in the now and be happy with what you've got and appreciate what you've got. And that—that that is uh, what I took when I when I watched the content of what your charity is putting out, the inspiration that they actually project, not not the expected negative feeling I was initially thinking when I read the bios of what was going on. So it's, it's amazing what you're doing. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about... Um, <laughs> when I was asking the audience, when I come to the audience in a minute and ask some questions, I was asking the audience about, about what they'd like to know from you. It was always interesting to me. People hear you're a billionaire and and um, you know, they, 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 there's an assumption. And one of the things that someone said was, I bet he's got a lot of skeletons in the closet. And so have you got any skeletons in the closet that you wanna to declare today? Well, there's, there's
1: always things that you are not proud of in life, and, um, and that's all in my autobiography. But, you know, when I, when I was six or seven, I uh, got curly ginger hair, freckles, and I was bullied <laughs> a lot. Everywhere I went, I was bullied. And you learn from that that one of the best ways of not being bullied is being the bullier. And so I'm afraid I never lost being bullied. There was always somebody that wanted to have a go at me, but I did end up uh, being unkind to uh, people that I shouldn't have been. Mm. And I understand why and I Mm. forgive myself for it, but but I am ashamed of it because when I now look at and talk to people about kindness and when I see people who are bullied, whether it's because of race or creed, whatever the reason somebody's bullied and you see the misery it caused in that person's life, well, maybe I caused some of that misery during my growing up years and uh, I wish I
0: hadn't. That's very big of you to admit that, I think. Um, Something for us to all reflect on. Who could we say something nice to today or or say sorry to that we perhaps hurt by accident, even if we think it was their fault? I um, really uh, enjoyed um, you talking about uh, your, I guess, your belief that the the best of what you've got to do is ahead of you. So what do you see in the future for yourself? What, what, what would you, you know, let's say 20 years from now, assuming we we're going to live forever now, thanks to the metaverse, um, what, what would you like to see happen in the world in the next 20 years?
1: Well, that's, that's a deep question, isn't it? Because we have so many challenges in the world. I mean, clearly the number one thing I'd like to see is the climate crisis solved. And I think we're one hell of a long way off the trajectory that is going to do that. So I really, really fear for our children and grandchildren in the future. And that's probably my number one thing. Number two is that uh, the Ukraine managed to defeat or not defeat Putin, but managed to repel Putin and reclaim their territories and are able to carry on with their democratic lives. Number three is not what I'd like to see happen it's a great fear of mine that the chinese invade taiwan and we've got putin ukraine china taiwan and the world becomes immensely destabilized so i suppose really what i'd like to see it's back to kindness kindness and a democratic society where people are treated in the in the correct way
0: i yeah well i definitely Three good to-do list items there, I think. Um, why have you not gotten to politics yourself? I, I know it's public knowledge that you've donated to the Conservative Party in the past. It's public knowledge that you've criticised Boris Johnson recently. But why, why have you, you personally not got uh, more heavily involved in the political side? Yeah, a lot of people
1: ask me that question.
0: Um, I'm not original.
1: <laughs> Be, because I, I think I could make a difference to Britain. I think I could do a lot of things that were productive to grow Britain's GDP and to make Britain more prosperous so that the poorer members of society could could enjoy a much better lifestyle, a society where they get better healthcare and better education, but without just trying to tax the rich, which clearly won't work because the rich will go off to other climes. So we, we can't do that. We have to grow GDP in order to better society. So that that is something that I really think that I could do. I, I've I've prospected uh, the Conservative Party mainly through Boris Johnson with something that I called what called Cordwell Pandemic Recovery, a way of growing Britain's GDP and helping solve cri- uh, climate crisis at the same time over the next ten to fifteen years. But you know the trouble is politicians think four years ahead. Unfortunately, now, the Conservative Party are only thinking two years ahead. And even more unfortunately, the leadership contest, they're thinking four weeks ahead. Well, what good is that to anybody? You know, we need vision. We need long-term vision of how we create a great, great Britain, not just an okay great Britain. And that has to be fairness. It has to be prosperity. It has to be GDP growth. But above all, it has to be protecting the environment. So the question was, why, why not? Well, I think that politics corrupts. I think if you become a politician, you're not free to say what you believe the truth is, what you believe the situation is, because you've got one eye on pleasing your party, one eye on pleasing the electorate, and both eyes on winning the next election and uh, i feel that my beliefs would end up being uh, watered down prejudiced and i wouldn't be genuine to myself
0: it worries me this conversation because it it it, uh, makes me worry for democracy a little bit because i actually looked at becoming london mayor and uh and then when i got an advisor in to help me they said simon the first thing you have to do is lie to get elected you need 51 percent of the electorate to vote for you so whatever you believe let's just keep that quiet and let's say these things because these are the hot points so how can we fix that surely we can't just leave that alone because the politicians sadly control a lot of what happens right now uh, with this country
1: yeah well there's no ideal world is there unfortunately and i think you know capitalism isn't perfect Uh, UK and American politics and Western politics isn't perfect but if you compare that to China or Russia I think it's a long way towards perfection Uh, but we're always going to have dishonest politicians who lie their way to the top. Fortunately democracy stops them doing any great amount of damage but can we actually absolutely trust them?
0: Well, Very few, I'm afraid. Who's with me? Vote John. Let's get that going on social media. Vote John.
1: I reckon. Did we just (laughs) announce that
0: you're running a new party and launching a new party? Did we just get a scoop? There, you're going to launch a new party. I think so. I think the media can spin it that way. Can't you, media? Can't you? But uh, I think I think we need uh, some honesty around politics, and I think we need a new party. And uh, you know, this was not approved by your PR team at all, these questions, so I won't put you on the spot anymore. But thank you so much for uh, giving us your honest opinion, as you always do, John, I appreciate it. Now awesome. look, um, why don't we get to the audience uh, and ask some questions. So let's get the mic out there, uh, if we can, please. Uh, and just while waiting for the mic to hit. Um...
1: There's one behind you
0: there. Okay, you yeah, who's yeah. got, got a mic? If you got a mic?
1: hi john chris gunn just like to say thanks for the cordwell children doing some fantastic work um, what are your plans for the planet or helping the planet myself being a massive ocean advocate yeah well i wish i'd got the absolute answer to that and of course i haven't but it's clear that uh, it, there's a number of issues uh most people don't talk about water shortage but The future of this planet is going to depend entirely on water shortage, so it's not about, I mean, climate change is part of the water shortage problem, but it's about water shortage. We have to get to renewable energy as fast as we possibly can. But I fear that that won't be enough. Um, I think if I told you my plan, you'd probably think I was a crap pot. You might think that anyway, but I see From all of the reading that I've done over the last 20 years, I see a really catastrophic situation building for the planet because people don't talk about water, but the water table is falling all over the world. We've been using water aquifers for the last 40 years that have taken hundreds of millions of years to fill up, and 80% of those water aquifers now are empty. The draw on water is ferocious and, the, and that is a real crisis point now at the same time because of this arable farmland is diminishing and at the, to the tune of hundreds of millions of acres per year and it's going to diminish further in some of the world's most arable farmland as that farmland gets flooded by rising sea levels so we do have some really huge challenges ahead let me just take you forward to my vision that if we can save this planet and we look 30, 40 years ahead and the rising sea level is threatening so much of our society, my vision, and I do think we should do this as, as crazy as you're going to think it sounds, is that we should move to renewable energy at a ferocious rate, not 2050, that's, that's lunacy. We don't have the next 30 years. We don't have that. We need to move towards renewable energy in the next five years. An absolute phenomenal, phenomenal growth and investment. And when we've got renewable energy, that we drive city-sized desalination plants all over the world, which then pump water up into the mountains and repopulate all the water table that is so desperately causing starvation and famine and is going to be even more so. Now this probably for most people's brains and for the governments around the world would be seen too far-fetched. But I do believe it's actually probably the only way that I can see at the moment of solving the situation if you go out 20 or 30 years into the future.
0: What, What can we do, John? I hear it and I'm like, what can we do here now to help?
1: Well, we we can all reduce um, our consumption, of course. I mean, I'm often called hypocritical on this because I've flown the helicopter in today, but if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here. And I, you know, so, and that does, it it is damaging to the environment. But if we all did what I've done in other ways, I've done ground source heat pumps in, um, I've got uh, all LED lighting everywhere, My house, the heating is almost never on. And in spite of being a huge house, I only heat the rooms that I need to live in, which is 10% of the house. I do whatever I can in other ways. And if we all did that, every man, woman and child did everything that they can. I cycle everywhere if I can. You know, I try and avoid using the car. If I do use the car, it's electric. Um, So we just all need to do the most we can but it won't be solved by individuals individuals can contribute it'll be solved by governments in the world coming together to do what they need to do in order to survive
0: new political party new political party yeah so um i agree um but i, I do think individuals um can, can can make a difference too it's funny when i was backstage um, and and someone was putting the mic on and they said, "Oh, are you the guy with the helicopter?" I was like, "No, no, I'm I'm not the guy with the helicopter, uh, but I do have a Tesla. So I was quite proud that I've got a Tesla, and uh, and I've got a solar panel that powers the Tesla at my home, and it feels good. It feels good to be it doing a little bit, you know. And it's 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 not a cheap investment, but I think I hope that stuff can come down in cost for people.
1: Mm. So that then, Ole- especially electric for electricity vehicles, uh, electric vehicles will come down, won't they? But I mean, already uh, my Tesla does the equivalent of sixty-five miles per gallon. Mm. You know, so it, it's already Probably finances itself anyway. Mm. Not everybody can afford one, but mm. you know th- these electric vehicles. The battery technology will develop massively over the years to come. I think electric vehicles need to be continued to be subsidised, mm. and if we do that, most people uh, are going to be switching to electric over the next five to ten years. And of course, we won't be able to buy a brand new combustion engine anyway after twenty thirty in this country.
0: So, next question, please. Um, I don't know where the oh, mic I think right. is. Where's the Someone mic? here? here? Good. Let's do the VIP area. The VIPs. Next. Non-VIPs, whatever that means. Please go ahead. Firstly,
1: thank, thanks a lot, John. That was fascinating. Um, I'm quite interested by your thoughts on politics. Um, I think it's Bismarck that said that less people know about how laws and sausages are made, the better they'll sleep at night. Given that politics is the messy process by which we solve our ultimate divisions, And so we're stuck with it. How would you like to see a reform? What should we be voting for, if anybody presents it, for how we organise our politics and our democracy? Well, I wish wish I'd got the answer to that, you know, because what we actually need, in reality, is a very, very smart... A very, very smart leader of the country who has got complete autonomy and autocracy and who is, who is benevolent. It doesn't really exist, does it? But that is what we need because we need somebody who's brave enough and smart enough to take the right decisions without worrying about being voted in next time. And I don't have an answer to it because the, the very nature of democracy allows us to get rid of a party that we don't like and don't want and that keeps democracy in place, but at the same time, it makes those politicians only focused on winning the next election. And a lot of things that they should be doing, I vehemently disagree with. I'll give you an example. 20 years ago, I was preaching that fuel should be priced out of sight. And those fuel prices should be told in advance that there will always be 10% Every year, another few percent over and above inflation. Now, would that be a vote catcher? No, my flip side of that was then I'd put subsidies into all the poorer people of society who it was damaging, and then use all the balance to invest in renewable energy, in home insulation, in making this country less dependent on fuel, and balance the two things out. But how many people would vote for a dearer? gallon of fuel how many people will vote for uh, sugar tax which is kill, eat, gonna kill millions in the future already is how many people would vote for a dear a pint of beer and alcohol is probably the worst drug in the world I drink by the way so I'm not being puritanical I love alcohol but you've got to face facts it's a horrible horrible drug
0: yeah, well said, I, I agree. I'm completely addicted to sugar.
1: So would um, they vote for me when I deliver hard messages? I Probably think not. so,
0: I think Probably so. Not. I would, I would, we need the truth. <laughs> I would, who would? Put your hand up. More hands, come on, you don't need that sugar.
1: <laughs> Everybody wants the
0: sugar. Yeah, I, think, yeah sugar. I know, well, maybe. Um, do you know,
1: just an interesting point on that. Yeah. What do you think the number one killer is in the UK? Over there. Sorry? (laughs) Partly right, probably, yeah, but I was looking.
0: Well, I'll I'll tell you
1: what it is, it's diabetes. And what causes diabetes? Sugar. And our diets are laden with sugar from the moment we get up in the morning to the moment we go to bed at night. I'm going to keep this question short because I don't want to be preaching to your boy. You, but did you know, for instance, tell me how many people realize that a glass of orange juice in the morning is almost as bad, almost as bad as a glass of full fat Coke, which delivers you 11 teaspoons full of sugar? Few, not many, not many. Throw the orange juice away. Throw it away. It's deadly. I'll tell you something else as well the orange juice fattens your liver, it causes fatty liver disease. But just one final point on this, and and this is what all the doctors and scientists say in both America and the UK and parts of Europe, and that is that in 15 years time, our entire national health budget will go solely on the treatment of diabetes. What a terrifying thought sugar is dreadful and it's not the sugar that you think it is it's embedded sugar in 95 percent of supermarket shelf items
0: you make me think of doing a TikTok around it it's uh, do like like with covid i'm not sure i'm even allowed to say that word anymore but we all had to stay at home right imagine the same outcome for sugar don't go out there there's chocolate don't go out there but we kind of need that we need to make people wake up and realize how bad it is for you and uh, I've got, I've got a five-year-old son who's got a lot of food allergies. So since he's been born, I have to check everything that's in food, I never did. And it is shocking what's in some of the food that people are just grabbing and eating. Shocking.
1: It's a difficult challenge for the government, though, isn't it? Because, you know, we've got all this body dysmorphia. We've got all these young girls, especially, who suffer from bulimia and anorexia. And all as a result of thinking that they need to be stick-thin. And that then causes a counter-reaction in the other direction where fat is acceptable and good but it's not a good message to give out because a lot of those people that are overweight are going to be suffering from the consequences of diabetes in years to come and put a colossal strain on the health service and we are moving towards being an incredibly unhealthy society in the years to come I agree so, um, a lady we, here we, I'm desperate being told to get we're here. almost we got, out
0: of time, so I'm going to wrap up, uh, actually. Um, you're, you're the boss, by the oh. way. you want to carry on, we can carry on. Well, I'll
1: take that lady's yep. question, because she's really keen to tell us Yeah,
0: sure, go ahead. Yeah, please. Have we got a one. mic there? Yeah.
1: Oh, over. OK,
0: this lady was actually first oh, in the non-VIP oh, section. For, over there first,
1: then, if you're OK for time.
0: Yeah, I'm OK. What time are I'm we? I'm here for you. Because I have got another appointment. Yeah, um, yeah you've got two you You've got two film shoots or something. Two afternoon. questions,
1: and one to the lady there who's praying for a question. Have we got the microphone? Oh, here, okay.
0: If, like most of us, you're not making necessarily a lot of money, but you want to do charitable things, and it costs a lot in expenses and in your time, how can you do more charitable acts, even though at the moment you don't currently have a lot, necessarily, of money? Would you try and make more and then do charitable things, do it simultaneously, or what would you do if you were made, for example?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question, and I think it depends where you are in your life and your aspirations. In my case, i would got really big aspirations, and I was so focused on growing my business that I neglected my charitable instincts that went back to when I was a kid. So I didn't really do anything very much until I was over 40 years old, and then the fire lit within me. So, you know, the, what I say to people, if you've got a very demanding business and a very, very ambitious growth plan, put every last effort into that because charitable needs will still be there in 10 years time, make a load of money and then really try and help change society. But that doesn't stop all of us along the way, at least doing a little bit. And it's for each person to decide where the priorities are, whether they want to do a lot more and have a poorer, a poorer standard of living or, or not be so ambitious or be massively ambitious, but sooner or later, everybody really needs to give because There are so many needy people out there that need help. But well well done you.
0: Thank you. I hope you found today's podcast both inspiring and useful. And if you need more help, visit purposefulproject.com where all the resources to help you start and grow a business are free.